What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Life without parole. While seen as a more quote-unquote compassionate outcome by some liberals, neoliberals, I would argue, the reality is life without parole, or LWAP as it is commonly called today, is simply a death sentence by another name, as it means more likely than not, you will die in prison. And that death most likely will be premature due to increased risks of health issues, violence, and the torture that is common inside of the American penal system. Our guest today looks at life without parole or LWAP, its appearance and expansion in America's criminal legal system in his book, Death by Prison, The Emergence of Life Without Parole and Perpetual Confinement. Christopher Seeds is an assistant professor of criminology, law and society at the University of California, Irvine, and he joins us today. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for inviting me, Kat. Really excited about this conversation and actually coming at it from an angle I had never thought to come at it from, and that's historically. So I just sort of want to start by asking you why it matters to understand the historical shifts inside of America's criminal legal landscape as it relates to the emergence and implementation of LWAP. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, the most important voices that are going to be heard in changing the picture on life without parole in the United States are those of the people serving the sentences themselves. But I also think that it's good to know where things come from uh, when you want to change them. And when I started looking into life sentencing more, um, I used to be a capital defense lawyer and then and then moved into a more scholarly area and started researching life sentencing. I found pretty quickly that life without parole hasn't always been uh, what we know it as today, which is a sentence from which you're never going to be released. And everybody proclaims that much. And that surprised me because I, I, I guess I just assumed that it was always this way. And for me, that was um, kind of a wake up call to say, okay, well, I'd like to take a closer look at this and understand um, how did we go to about come about getting this sentence where we're putting tens of thousands of people in prison until death. And it seems a rather normal, it's normalized. Let's just put it that way. Um, the comfort level this country has, in other words, with putting people in prison, I thought demanded some explanation. Well, let's talk a little bit about how it used to be uh, through some of the historical context you present in your book. Um, you talk about uh, earlier forms of, of life without parole, but like the lease system and the advent of perpetual prison terms. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's a little bit of terminology that's maybe um, useful to kind of address, uh, which is that life without parole, as we know it today, LWAP, as, as a lot of people call it, is a form of death in prison, right? It's a death in prison sentence, um, but it's not necessarily the only one. Uh, there's also virtual life terms, like you know, a 50 year sentence is going to be a, a death sentence, a death in prison sentence for many people. So, um, the Sensing Project and its reports, right, looks at life without parole, but it also looks at virtual life terms and. Um, there's 55,000 or more people serving life without parole in this country. There's at least 40,000 serving sentences of 50 years or longer. So you can 
put those together as I think uh, death in prison sentences, and it's it's worth looking at these together today. Um, that said, historically, um, there were also death in prison sentences uh, before life without parole ever existed as technically as a punishment. Um, people got put in prison for life and um, and not released. So the terminology itself comes really comes from around the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, when parole becomes an institution in American punishment, a review for release and post-release supervision. And so it's in contrast to a life sentence that's going to be reviewed for parole that the sentence of life without parole comes about. You make this point a little later in the book, but I'm going to uplift it now because life with parole, because of the ways in which parole boards operate, can also be <laughs> just as much of a death sentence in prison. Yeah, yeah, it can be, and it and it has been uh, for a number of people, many people um, over time. So it's a little harder to quantify, right? Though I mean, you don't you don't always you can't just say outright that this is going to be a death in prison sentence because it does come down to the review. So I think there's this, there's an important distinction to be made between what we know as LWAP today and the life in prison sentence that has parole, simply because LWAP doesn't have that, right? And it has no, it it's proclaims no chance. But what I want to get back to the historical point, which was that. Life without parole early on in the 20th century, I mean, what it really meant, what it still means is you didn't have parole, but you had, you had a potential to get out of prison through clemency. The life without parole sentence was essentially the life sentence for which the governor or some of the governor's officials made the decision about release, not a parole board. And today that's, Clemency is barely effective at all, and no governor is expected to grant it. When they do, um, it's it's very much a uh, it comes as something of a surprise, I think, to a lot of people and a windfall. It's not an expectation in any way, but in many jurisdictions earlier in the 20th century, there was a developed um, practice for how governors and their officials would review life without parole sentences. And uh, there are some well-known examples. One is Louisiana. Louisiana, in, all, in Louisiana, all life sentences didn't have parole, or I should say no life sentences had parole. Uh, but they had this review mechanism set up by which after 10 years and six months, the uh, prison administration, the warden, or some other administrative official would make recommendations to after a person has served that long, the uh, prison administrator would make a recommendation uh, as to whether the governor should consider the person for release. And that was a routinized system to the extent that folks serving life sentences in Louisiana up through the late 1970s expected to be reviewed for release after 10 years and six months and expected and really expected to get released not much longer after that. That doesn't mean everybody got out, but it means that there was some understanding that there would be a review. And I think just compare that to life without parole today, there where there is no, there's no expectation of a review at all. 
no expectation of review at all. And actually not granting clemency is a tool for elected officials like governors to gain political capital in certain circles, particularly if they're looking at another electoral cycle. Yeah, absolutely. Christopher Seeds, um, moving on a bit to the period of time your book focuses on the mid 1970s and 1990s. I know this is a super big question, um, but I want to talk about what shifted, right? Um, And specifically how the war on drugs, which is really a war on black bodies and the anti-death penalty movement conflated to increase the utilization and normalization of life without parole sentences. Yeah. So it's interesting that, um, first of all, the way I see it, LWAP, and the way I presented in this book based on the research is I kind of break it into three periods of time. Um, one is before 1972, and that's a period where the life without parole sentence provides some possibility of release via clemency. It's what we were just talking about. The second period, which is what you're referring to, which the book focuses on, runs from the early 70s to the early 90s. And that's a period in which the practices and understandings of life without parole are changing. And they're changing in the context of pretty large-scale national changes with respect to American punishment. And that's what you've asked me to describe. Um, And I will in just a sec. And then the third period, which I see being from like the early 90s onward, is where life without parole sentence is what we know today as LWAP and offers no reasonable possibility for release. In other words, a change took place between the early 70s and the early 90s that was pretty much done. And this new thing, this LWAP as never getting out, as death in prison, was basically solidified by the early 90s. And since then, it's proliferated. So um, there are three things that I point to in the book that changed the, changed the fabric of American punishment in ways that made a life sentence with no release, that made a death in prison sentence um, just made it, it gel. It just made it, it seemed like it fit in a way that um, wouldn't have really, wouldn't have really worked in the same way beforehand. And one of those does have to do with capital punishment. Um, the Furman versus Georgia decision, which the United States Supreme Court decided in 1972, in that case, the court invalidated uh, the death penalties in all the states that were using it at the time. And uh, it's pretty well known that, that the states, uh, a lot of those states reacted uh, against that decision and tried to reenact capital punishment pretty quickly. But another effect of that Furman decision was that it kind of uh, shone a spotlight on on life sentences, because with the death sentence invalidated, although it was brought back four years later in Greg versus Georgia, where the, when the court approved of some of the new statutes, but during that interim period where there was no death penalty, uh, people asked prison administrators, the public, um, the media wondered, well, what, what are we gonna do with folks that used to be on death row? Or what are we gonna do with people that one would have thought would be on death row. How are those people going to be uh, sentenced and imprisoned? And the life sentence was the next in line. But when 
when you looked at what the life sentence was in most states, and again, life without parole was not what we know it to be today, people were getting out on life sentences. So it was not by any means a way of putting somebody away forever. And compared to a death sentence, it appeared relatively lenient. And this caused um, concern. And what I talk about in the book is how it, it animated arguments that had been not very successful, uh, but they'd existed, but they hadn't been so successful uh, arguments about mandatory minimum sentences, arguments about truth in sentencing, the kind of arguments that were bread and butter of, uh, you know, of the tough on crime law and order um, period that would, that would come in the uh, late eighties and nineties, but um, not, not majority voices at that time, but it began a shift of looking at life sentencing and raising some questions about how long people should be in. So I think that's, that's one significant uh, change. Another one has to do with the, um, the shifting, and this is complicated, the, uh, the kind of changing fortune of rehabilitation in this country. And um, trying to think of how I can present this in the, the simplest but also clearest way parole presumes a review for release and the life sentence had been a real key to that way of thinking about um about corrections um about imprisonment ever since the beginning of the 20th century so that um the indeterminate sentence uh it's classically a life sentence you will get out you'll be reviewed for parole you'll get out or you won't maybe you'll have to wait of course, maybe you'll never get out, as you noted, but rehabilitation was sort of the crux of that um, system. And when rehabilitation came under challenge in the 1970s, and from all angles, really, uh, incarcerated people were had long been critical of rehabilitation, uh, but conservatives also thought it was too lenient, and uh, penologists weren't really sure if, if rehabilitation was effective or not. So all these critiques combine to really challenge that paradigm. And what happens when that paradigm is challenged is, is parole gets, uh, starts to lose um, its popularity and gets withdrawn. And this is important for the life sentence because life sentences had, for the most part, been with parole. And even the ones that didn't have parole that had clemency, as we noted, usually had some kind of mechanism that uh, some practice that that people could um, rely upon to some extent. Right. Chris, before I'm sorry to to interrupt uh, your explanation because, because it it does require some level of detail. I'm curious about what was happening socially though, at that time that impacted the belief that rehabilitation was not something that should be invested in. Not that I believe that that's ever what our carceral system has done, but for the sake of this interview. Okay. Well, Okay. Yeah. Um, there's, I mean, there's different social, uh, the, the, the crisis of rehabilitation from a, um, from the left is, is wrapped up in, um, in critical politics. It's, it's wrapped up in challenges to the prison that are being raised. Um, like the Americans, uh, friends service, 
committee writes the famous pamphlet, Struggle for Justice. So it's, it is part of a larger movement um, and lar- it's, it's related to, um, to civil rights. It's related to um, black organizing in the prison. All of this comes to, is coming together to fuel this, this critical perspective on rehabilitation. But it's not just that that brings it down. It's also the lack of popularity it had from other, other quarters already. So in other words, social movements are, are contributing there. But what ultimately happens is that when rehabilitation loses favor, what replaces it are fixed sentences. And I hope I responded enough to your question, Cap. Uh, the, the way this works with rehabilitation, changing to fixed sentences, is then the sentence becomes what it says, so to speak, right? More than it used to be. And in a life sentence, um, life means life is a lot different than life with a chance for review after 10 years and six months. You did. You answered a, a piece of it. I guess what's dancing around in my head, right, is like you look at what happened in the 1990s, right, with the advent of the crack cocaine epidemic and uh, then the, the clamoring for more incarceration. You look at what's happening right now as a result of the economic pandemic, right, the clamoring for more police and more incarceration. I'm wondering during this period of time, the, the early 70s, was there a similar clamoring? Like what was, you know, electeds, res- electeds both stoke fear and then utilize that fear yeah. to do some sort of implementation of policy, right? Yeah. They can address it. So I'm wondering, was that dynamic at play um, at, at that yeah. time? Yeah, it's, I, it's always in play, right? But it's it's less in play then than it was in the later eighties and the nineties when it really starts to take off. And, um, what's interesting, I think about the role of life without parole in this is that when politicians started yelling for locking people up and throwing away the key. And, um, when that really does start to move in the eighties and nineties, life without parole is solidifying as something that people understand to be, you never get out. So it becomes a very effective tool in those kind of arguments. But I guess the point I wanted to just emphasize, um, just to make sure we get it out there, is that that's a new way of looking at life without parole that had really shifted since the early 70s when nobody would have thought of a life without parole. Most people wouldn't have thought of a life without parole sentence as a death in prison term. So that was already changing. And part of the reason it was changing was because parole was being taken away, which was not necessarily um, a punitive move. It was a structural one, but not an outright punitive one. And that's important, I think, that these two things are always working together. There's a punitiveness, and then there's also a disregard or lack of attention to things that are significantly changing um, the situation adversely for people serving life sentences. Well, you just used a word that's a segue to my next question, which is um, you make a a rather large point about the culture of disregard that accompanies the normalization of LWAP sentences um, and and where that culture of disregard intersects with race or anti-Blackness in this country. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's, you can, you can go back historically and find, and find disregard baked into 
um, the beginning of the prison, which is linked to, um, you know, social education and perspectives on on the people who are being imprisoned. Uh, the, some of the arguments of the original theorists were that life sentences, um, all sentences should be life sentences because people who are in prison needed to needed to get educated, needed to redeem themselves in some way, and that they shouldn't be let out until until they had. Um, that kind of perspective has some is is kind of motivated by some idea about the lack of dignity that the individual has, such that when they get in prison, they may they may not get out, and there's a sort of acceptance of that. And um, when I look back in the history too of perpetual confinement, which is what I I refer to this as in the book, this being put in prison and never and never getting out again. Um, I think convict leasing is another is another good example of this. People being yeah. put in prison for a lot of different a lot of different offenses. I mean, including vagrancy and things that you know were were crimes simply committed to to um, reanimate slavery in a different form, right? But regardless of the crime and the original sentence, when they are subjected to a convict lease system under you know torturous conditions uh, in which people could die before they even met this, say a seven year sentence, that's a death in prison term too, that also reflects a real lack of care uh, for the person who's in prison and what happens to them. And I think, um, I mean, it's not a direct parallel, but I think there, there's a similar uh, related strand of disregard that runs through the development of life without parole in the contemporary United States, which is that laws and policies and practices changed in a bunch of ways in the 70s and early 80s and late 80s. And this is what the book's documenting. And not all of those ways were calling out right for death in prison, but they were creating death in prison sentences. And what happened after those were created was that rather than object to them and fight them and say, wait, this is a change in law that affects lifers extremely harshly. And it seems, you know, way out of way disproportionate to, to the punishments that preceded it. Um, a lot of actors in a lot of different stations basically accepted what had happened, accepted life without parole as no release and move forward with it. And that's my perspective. You mentioned the, the death penalty defense or the anti-death penalty movement. And, you know, I think that that's one actor, that's one group who, who picked up the new LWAP and, and used it um, to help get rid of the death penalty. But they were long, long conflicted over doing that. That was not something that, that, that was done easily. And um, it probably wouldn't have been done, my book argues, unless there was already quite a bit of LWAP already existing in this country so that they could point to their constituents and say, hey, this is already happening. It's not like we're creating this thing. So um, let's just make the best of a bad situation. You're listening to Law Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with Christopher Seeds, whose new book is Death by Prison, The Emergence of Life Without Parole and Perpetual Confinement. Christopher, 
how does the United States compare against other places in the world? I mean, this, you know, Europe, for example, in terms of the utilization of, of LWAP sentences. There's a um, there's a, a worldwide study of of lifetime imprisonment by uh, Dirk Vansel Smith and Catherine Appleton that came out a few years ago, and they look at all of the nations that use life without parole sentencing. And there are a number of other countries that do it, but um, there's a graph that I put in my book that I borrowed from them. Um, and it's really effective um, in showing how the U.S. relates to other countries, because when you take all the other countries, some in Europe, uh, some in Africa, some in Asia, um, it's interesting that Latin America tends not to have this because there's a uh, generally human rights agreements in Latin America prohibited life sentences, but many of those countries nevertheless have virtual life sentences. But this, if you took the other countries that have LWAP, life without parole, and you looked at their, the amounts those countries, uh, prisoners, uh, people, those countries are holding into those sentences, it would, the highest would be around 4,000. And if you put the United States then on the map or on the chart, and you've got over 55,000 people serving LWAP, you can imagine, right, that the scale of the entire graph has to change. And what looked like a relatively high bar on the graph without the United States uh, becomes very, very small when you put it there. So I think that's the, that's the way the United States compares to the rest of the world. It's not the only country that does this, but it's the only country that does it to this extent, uh, to, into which it's, it's really a part, a regular part of the criminal legal system toolkit. You, you mentioned earlier, right, that the, the best voices to talk about uh, LWAP are, are those who are experiencing it uh, by other sentences. That said, we know that conditions inside of United States prisons are horrific. Um, how much worse does it get in terms of, of what folks serving LWAP sentences do and don't have access to uh, in, inside of institutions or, or the, different, the, dif, the different ways they are treated uh, in, inside of what I call American concentration camps? There are, I, I mean, I think this deserves more, more study, frankly, the, the opportunities and programs and um, possibilities for, um, for release that, that people serving LWAP don't get compared to um, people serving other sentences. I think that, that deserves a lot more attention. Um, but I mean, just to name a few, there, there are parole opportunities that are given to every, people over 60 um, in some states and for which a person serving an LWAP sentence may not be eligible. Um, so there, there's that kind of thing. I think there are other, there are other aspects in the day-to-day -day life. There might be restrictions on secure classification restrictions on, on where LWAP can go and can, and cannot go. But I think, you know, what the LWAP sentence becomes in prison is an experience of aging into death inside of aging and developing, you know, age-related illnesses, chronic illnesses, um, which 
then you're basically being treated for um, serious medical problems in a prison in a prison setting. And as we all know, the prison's primary purpose is not to um, take care of people; it's to confine people, and this creates a lot of problems for the people who are are suffering, and also really for the administrators. So prisons shouldn't be a place for old people. And um, I'm sure you're probably aware of um, of the of the reports that have been, you know, checking out on how many people today in prison are seniors that they're getting older. I think the number of people age 55 or older in U.S. prisons has tripled um, over the last two decades. And um, I read, a, I know the reports that um, that people who were 55 accounted for nearly 50% or more of the annual deaths in prison um, than in 2020 or 2019 than they did at the beginning of the millennium. So, and most of that's natural cause death. So um, it's important to think of an OWAP sentence as a sentence that means a sentence in which people are experiencing age-related illnesses and dealing with those in a prison setting before they die. Right. I mean, I guess two things to that point, uh, Christopher. One is, you know, you mentioned uh, that the job of prisons isn't to care for people, it's to confine them. and, And, you know, it's a whole other interview and I've done a few of them. But I think critical to remember that that medical care inside of most prisons is a for profit, um, a, a for profit affair, right? And a lot of folks won't won't even go to medical because of how badly they're treated if they do. Um, so that 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 was one thing. And then I, I I guess I struggle a little bit with the term natural causes because. You think about all of those years of bad food and not enough recreation and solitary confinement and mental and emotional stress and trauma. Um, we see a lot of elders dying before they actually become elders, right? Right. Yeah. I, I mean, so the reasons for going seeking medical care or not in prison are complicated. And I, I, I agree with you on that. And yeah, thanks for pushing back on the term natural causes because you're absolutely right. I mean, what's natural is, is unnatural. It's, it's, uh, these causes are years and years of, of, um, a bad diet of massive anxiety around living conditions and, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So it's true. What, what's an, what's an, it's a natural cause means it's, uh, it wasn't a sudden cause, right? It wasn't, um, uh, but it doesn't mean it's a cause independent of the experience of imprisonment. So we've been spending the last few minutes talking about elders. I want to talk about young people. Are we a country that sentences minors to LWAP? We still are. Um, we, you know, until 2010, we were the one of the few countries in the world that, um, or maybe the only country in the world that said it was okay to sentence minors to LWAP for even non-homicide crimes. And then in the Graham versus Florida case, the United States Supreme Court ruled that that uh, minors couldn't be sentenced for non-homicide crimes to life without parole. And then two years later in Miller versus Florida, I mean, Miller versus Alabama, the Supreme Court ruled that you could not sentence uh, minors to LWAP for homicide crimes, except in rare circumstances. 
And then that ruling was made retroactive uh, in 2016 in a case called Montgomery versus Louisiana. And based on that mandate, um, the states with people serving LWAP sentences that they received for crimes committed when they were were children uh, were supposed to resentence everyone. And that's a process that's been ongoing, but it's not one that's completed. And uh, there are still youth serving LWAP in this country, are people who committed their crimes as youth serving LWAP in this country. Um, Christopher, I, I hope that I track this correctly, but it, it is your, um, your accounting of the Graham versus Florida case where the young man did ultimately win his case in the Supreme Court, right? Not to have an LWAP sentence, but it is a litigation of that case that contributed to the normalization and expansion of the utilization of life without parole in the state of Florida. Correct. Yeah. I just, kind of, kind of correct. Yeah. I mean, he did win his case, but the reason I, I bring that case up as an example and I, it's a 2006 case. So I don't, I don't see it as a, a case that's meaningful because it actually was responsible for sedimenting life without parole, but I see it as a a really meaningful example of what life without parole has become in the United States and um, just how easy it, I mean, easy is maybe not the right word, but how routine it was for Graham to get a life sentence for crimes in which no one was injured. And that's not to say there weren't victims who were, you know, affected by these crimes and, 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 uh, and upset by them and, uh, at all. But Graham was 15 when he committed one of the crimes. He was 17 when he committed another. And this is more detailed in all the briefing that went into that Supreme court case. And also in my book, um, and the judge could have sentenced him to a wide range of, of, uh, years in prison. And the judge decided to give him life. And just said, you know, you've had your chances. It seems like you're never going to change. So um, I'm just going to do the community a favor and put you in prison forever. And it's shocking, I think, really, that uh, you would give up on somebody so soon and that you would never give them a chance to even have a review that no one would ever ask under that sentence uh, at any point in the future, whether they had rehabilitated, matured, transformed, however you want to put it, in prison. Right. I mean, I, I, one of the things that struck me was that the fact that even the judge acknowledged that he had structures in place waiting to receive him, like his family, um, which we know was, was one of the biggest um, Deterrence of recidivism, right, is is a family that's ready to receive you, and and of course the way that we treat folks when they get home and continue to separate them from their families flies in the face of that. But um, this idea um, that locking people away forever and and doing this in in increasing degrees somehow is a protection um, for the rest of society when if that were actually true. Um, we wouldn't live in communities that look like they look today. And that to me is shocking that we continue to implement policies like this in the face of data and, um, you know, both qualitative and quantitative, qualitative and quantitative that, that say that absolutely this is not the way to go. 
Yes, I, I, I agree. And, uh, I mean, I think we can add on to that, that, uh, that the people that are being held there, I mean, holding people into their sixties and seventies and eighties in prison. I mean, um, it's, as you mentioned, the data, the studies that have been done, it's not, it's not, it's not a matter of debate that the, the, the lifers are a stabilizing force in the prison. They're not a dangerous group. The folks that get out have uh, extremely low recidivism and uh, there's not, there's very little known risk there. Um, and there's a high cost. There's, you know, putting up somebody in, pr- in prison for a year is a lot of money. And as they get older and they and they get into chronic illness problems, it's even more expensive. So, um, why the the state is willing to incur that cost um, too, I think, is to just to add on to what you were saying as well. Is, is you know why is that why is that just an accepted cost rather than um, letting folks go? Right. And we don't have a ton of time to dig into it, but like my, you know, my immediate thought goes back to what I asked you earlier about the intersection of LWOP and anti-blackness, anti-brownness, anti-mental health crisis, anti-poverty, right? That is the rule of law of this country. I think of the face of LWOP, uh, if what folks saw, right? Not that not that white folks don't get LWOP too, but if we look at the numbers, right, it's, it's many more black and brown folks. I think if the face looked different, we, we may see different trends, Right. Um, Chris, I only have a few minutes left with you, and I want to sort of talk about recent attempts to shift uh, the the way in which LWAP uh, exists, at least in the state of California. Maybe you could remind our listeners about a recent bill, um, Senate Bill 300, that was authored by Senator Dave Cortez out of San Jose. What what would it have done, and, and what ended up happening to it? Senate Bill SB 300 would have limited the use of life without parole in cases it would have it would have eliminated the use of life without parole in cases for people who were involved in a killing but did not were not did not commit the the killing or did not intend to commit the killing so in other words felony murder uh without intent for haters and abettors you can get you can get OWAP for that many people have are serving OWAP for that in California uh, and in other states, and this bill would have would have eliminated that prospectively going forward. Uh, it would have said no LWAP for that. So, it, in my perspective, that is, um, I mean, LWAP stretches quite broadly, and this is a this is a this is like the margins in in a way. You know, it's um, putting people away who didn't intend to that anybody die, and who didn't actually um, weren't actually the person who committed the the killing, um, that's, that seems like those are fringe elements of LWOP sentencing. And so um, it wasn't an aggressive bill in that, in that perspective. At, at all, and left it up to judicial discretion, right? Which <laughs> That's right. And also left it up to judicial discretion. So um, now what happened to it? I can't say. I wasn't in the, I wasn't in the, um, the oh, assembly. Oh, I can't. Uh, uh, it- they didn't get the votes. They couldn't they, get the votes. Right. They couldn't get the votes. Um, Even in progressive California. So it made it through the Senate, but didn't make it through the assembly. And, and yeah. uh, 
Where do we go from here? So the, the, the mission of this show, right, is to ex- expose, agitate, and build, build movement, build resistance. Uh, wh- where do we go from here? Do you, do you see a path forward to shifting this very common, very well-accepted uh, practice that most Americans, a lot of Americans, far too many, don't have a problem with? Particularly in a climate like we're in right now, right? Yeah, we are yeah. in a arrest them, lock them up, throw away the key climate right now. Well, it's a difficult climate to be doing it, right? And I started, actually, I started working on this book in 2014, which was a different climate. Um, But I think, I mean, I think one thing this book shows is that I would like to say that, that, that LWAP, as we know it, death in prison sentencing as it stands in the United States right now is historically an aberration. It's not something that, um, it's a phenomenon of the past half century. So, it's historically unusual. And for that reason, it's something that you would like to think we could point to and say, Hey, this is, this is not a way to do things. There are other ways that are more humane. We uh, fell asleep, you know, at the wheel in in the best light, right? The best light people were disregarding. Um, And um, let's pay more attention to this, recognize the scope of this problem and how comfortable this country has become with this this punishment that, uh, in any other, most other, probably every other, uh, most other nations would get a great deal of scrutiny. We, um, it doesn't get much at all at this point here. So I think shining a light on it, recognizing it's an aberration that it deserves more scrutiny. Hopefully that's some kind of, some kind of beginning. Um, I, I think in terms of reforms, I think it's best to just eliminate it. I don't think that um, it's useful to get into a situation where you're saying it's okay for certain situations and not others. I think, and this is the sentencing project's perspective too, uh, nobody should be sentenced forever without reconsideration. You know, people change, they grow, decades pass. Um, Everybody should get a review for release. And it doesn't mean everybody's gonna be released, but it, it recognizes the human capacity to mature and grow and offers everybody an opportunity. So I think that's that's where that's where we should go. Um, and how we do that in a in a difficult um, environment like we're in now. I mean, part of the reason I emphasized aging and the experience of aging uh, of people who have served life sentences and have been in for decades and then are dying inside is that maybe maybe visualizing that, maybe seeing those people, maybe becoming the public becoming more aware of who these people are and the conditions they're in at the end of their lives that are being held forever, maybe making that more public and really, really showing that to more people uh, could have an impact. You know, even in a conservative environment, I think I'd like to think that uh, we don't, this country doesn't hold the dignity of old people in such low esteem that it's not going to have a reaction. All right, Christopher Caesar, so much more to unpack, uh, but we've got to leave it there. I want to thank you so much for joining us. You all have been listening to Londis Order. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, and we've been in conversation with Christopher Seeds, whose new book is Death by Prison. The Emergence of Life Without Parole and Perpetual Confinement. Seed is an assistant professor of criminology and society at the University of Irvine, California. 
You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Rask and the Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.